the book of Romans in chapter 8. And tonight we are going to look one more time at this very precious verse. Romans 8.28 It is precious and it is powerful. It is a gem of great value and it is a mighty weapon to destroy despair and discouragement in our lives. Let's begin reading in verse 26. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now we've come to verse 28, and our outline for studying verse 28 has been very, very simple. We've asked two questions. The first question was this, and it was a very important one. Who is this promise for? Who is this promise of Romans 8, 28 for? And we spent two messages answering that question. And we saw first that this promise is for those who love God. They love the true God. They love Him more than His gifts. They love Him both in their hearts and in their lives. Lovers of God are those that can take hold of Romans 8.28. But then second, we saw also in that verse that this promise is for those who are called according to His purpose. And we saw that through Christ... Through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel message, God saves people. He calls people to Himself and He makes them His children, His wonderfully, graciously adopted children. He has effectually called His people to faith in Jesus and they are now called Christians. It is those who love God, it is those who have been called by God that are able to take hold of Romans 8.28 as true. Well, tonight we come to our second question. What is the promise? If this promise is a promise for Christians, what is this promise? Well, we see it written clearly. All things work together for good. But what does that mean? Tonight I want to unpack that promise using these three headings. We use these three headings a lot. The promise explained, the promise illustrated, and the promise applied. So the promise explained, illustrated, and applied. Let's begin with the promise explained. Note what the verse does not say. The verse does not say that all things are good. 
Sometimes people treat this verse that way. Sometimes you will hear people say very casually, it's all good. It's all good. Biblically, that is not true. All things are not good. There are some things that are intrinsically evil. Look at the Ten Commandments. To worship a God other than the true God is not good. To dishonor God's name or His day is evil. To make an image of God is not good. When we fail to treat our parents with reverence or respect or honor, that is wickedness. When people murder or commit adultery or steal, that is not good. When you are lied about, slandered, you know that's not right. When you covet, it's not good. And our list could go on and on of things that are not good. Abortion is not good. Racism is not good. Child abuse is not good. Favoritism, taking advantage of the poor and the weak. These are evil things. They are not good. We live in a world that is a mixture of good and evil. Some things are truly good. And some things are truly evil. We have to use discernment to distinguish what is good and what is bad. Our verse does not say that all things are good. Notice what the verse does say. All things work together for good. It isn't that each individual thing is good in and of itself. But when put together, all things are being worked for good. It's the salt principle. If you take powdered sodium by itself, the moment it comes in contact with air, it explodes. Liquid chlorine burns the skin, and in gas form, it can quickly become fatal. Put this explosive sodium and this deadly chlorine together in an ionic bond, and what do you get? Table salt. These things are not necessarily good in and of themselves. But you put them together and they work for good. Or consider the ingredients of a chocolate cake. Some of them would be good on their own. Most people like milk. Most of us really like chocolate frosting. But by themselves, the flour and the baking soda and the raw eggs, they're, they're not all that great. But it's when all of these ingredients are brought together by a skilled baker that the result is something wonderful. So also, God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. And our God is a very skillful workman. And He causes all things to work together so that His perfect plan to glorify himself and to bless his people comes to full fruition. Perhaps more helpful than those examples would be to think about a story. A good story is going to have its ups and its downs. A good story is going to have moments of conflict and darkness. 
But in the end, if the story is any good, the author has been leading us to a place where we will look back at the story and be thankful even for the dark, the dark moments because they all led to a wonderful place. All things work together for good. All things. This includes the very best of things. This includes the coming of Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection. His present intercession for you in heaven. His future return. This includes the giving of the Spirit and the giving of the Scriptures. The institution of the local church. The gift of your brothers and sisters in Christ. All things includes the prayers of others for you. All things includes the angels dispatched by the Father for your good. Your family. Your friends. The beauty of creation. The food on your table. The clothes on your body. The roof over your head. The sweetest things in life. The things that make you feel pure joy or pure wonder. Every one of them is being worked by God for your good. And all things includes the very worst of things. It includes the devil and his demons. It includes the allure of worldliness and the temptations of your flesh. Natural disasters family tragedies, hurtful words, lost jobs, broken hearts, cancer, heart disease. Even these are being worked together by God for your good. All things includes the biggest things, the creation of the world, the rise and the fall of kingdoms, international politics, the prospering of some lands more than other lands, decisions being made today in the White House and in the Kremlin and in the Great Hall of the People in Tiananmen Square, even these are being worked by God for your good, dear Christian. World leaders do not know your name, but the God who is over them does. They don't have you in mind in the decisions they make. But your heavenly Father does. All things includes the biggest things and all things includes the smallest things. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. Even little things affect big things. And so God must work in the little things. When Egypt came out against Israel at the Red Sea. We notice how God calls the Red Sea to be divided so that Israel could walk across on dry land. That was a big thing, God dividing the sea. We may also forget that we are told in Exodus that God clogged the wheels of the chariots of the Egyptians so that they drove heavily and not as quickly as normal. You see, God was involved in the big thing, the the, the dividing of the Red Sea, but He was also involved in the small thing, the nuts and the bolts of the Egyptian chariot wheels. He works all things, big and small, 
for our good. Dear Christian, all things work together for your good. Do you see here the wisdom and the power of God? Is it not incredible to think about just how wise and how strong God must be to work all things for good? Consider how absolutely intelligent he must be. How absolutely perfect in his choices and in his judgments. There has never been an architect or an author or an artist more thoughtful than God. There has never been anyone with such depth of wisdom and great ability. And dear Christian, this God is your God through Jesus. This God is your Father who loves you dearly. This gives me an opportunity to read one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon on this doctrine of God's providence and how God works in all things. Spurgeon preached this in the 1800s. He said, Some have said, Man does as he likes. And others have said, God does as he pleases. In one sense, they are both true. But there is no man that has the brains or the understanding enough to show where they both meet. We cannot tell how it is that I do just as I please, as to which street I shall go home by, and yet I cannot go home but through a certain road appointed by God. John Newton used to say there were two streets to go to, to, go to his church, and Providence directed as to which one he would use. Last Sabbath day, I came down a certain street, I do not know why, and there was a young man who wished to speak to me. He wished to see me many times before. I say that was God's providence, that I might meet that young man. Here was providence, and yet there was my choice. How, I cannot tell. I cannot comprehend it. But I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered by God as much as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an insect over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar tree is as much fully ordained by God as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between a mighty God that works all things by the sovereign counsel of His will and no God at all. Because a God that cannot do as He pleases, a God whose will is frustrated, is not a God and cannot be a God, I could not believe in such a God as that. Here is the God of the Bible. He is a God upon His throne. He is a God who can and does work all things according to His good pleasure. And His good pleasure 
is to work all things for the good of his children, his people. Well, that's the promise explained. Now the promise illustrated. Illustrated. And obviously, there are so many places in the Bible we could go to to see how God providentially worked through difficult and painful circumstances for the good of his people. We just spent many months in Genesis 37 through 50. And we watched the sovereign hand of God in the life of Joseph. We saw how God used the jealousy and the hatred of Joseph's brothers against him to bring about their salvation, both physically and spiritually. It was through their selling Joseph into slavery, through Joseph being slandered by Potiphar's wife and being put in prison unjustly that a day came about when Joseph's family would be saved from the famine. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and he says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Another place we could look to see this illustrated would be the book of Esther. The Jews have finally been allowed to return to their homeland, to Jerusalem. But Esther and Mordecai have not returned. That's the first sign that something's not right here. We have a shaky start. God has allowed his people to go back to Jerusalem and Mordecai and Esther are not there. Then Esther becomes part of a harem. Well, now things have gotten even worse. And then even when Esther becomes queen, she is not in a good place. Jewish women were not to marry pagan men, especially pagan kings. And we look at the book of Esther and we think, what in the world is going on here? Why would God let all of these terrible things happen so that Esther is in such a dangerous place for her soul? And then Mordecai sends a message to Esther. And in that letter, he makes this statement. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You see, the king gave the order for all of the Jews to be attacked and to be killed. And it was only because God had providentially put Esther in the position that she was in at that time that she was able to have the influence necessary in order to reverse the king's decree. It was not good that she was still in Susa when she should have been in Jerusalem. It was not good that she was in a harem. And it was not good that she married a pagan king, but God worked all things for the good of his people, even ultimately for the good of Esther. Of course, the most obvious example of Romans 8.28 being worked out in the scriptures is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That included the envy of the Pharisees and their scheming to kill Jesus It included their trials, which were just shams, as men were brought out to testify lies against Christ. Judas betrayed Jesus. His disciples abandoned Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. The crowd yells, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate refuses to do the right thing, washes his hands. Roman soldiers torture Christ. 
put him on the cross. And behind all of this is the serpent himself, Satan, who had been working for centuries to get that promised serpent slayer up on a cross. There was a lot not good in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There was a lot that was evil and that was wicked and that was heinous. But all of the betrayal and the physical agony and the internal anguish and the suffering of God's righteous wrath on the cross that Jesus experienced, all of that was worked by God for good. It was all a part of His plan. All of the vileness and the wickedness that brought the crucifixion of our Lord about had been being worked from the beginning to accomplish the salvation of His people. Indeed, in that moment, more than any other, God displayed His glory, both in His awesome justice and in His awesome mercy. There's never been a moment when the fullness of God's attributes were more on display than at that moment. And it was a moment that came through tough and bad deeds. The darkest day of human history the day mankind killed their Messiah was made by God the brightest day in human history. The day of our salvation. Looking beyond Bible times, I can't help but think of Adoniram Judson spending the night in that small village inn and he can hear the man in the next room over and the man is crying out in anguish. He is dying a very violent death. The next morning, Adoniram Judson says to the innkeeper on his way out, what happened to that man that I heard screaming last night? And the man says, he died. And Adoniram says, oh, well, who was he? And the man says, it was Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames had been a friend of Adoniram's. And in the providence of God, though neither one of them knew it, they had both been passing through the same town, and they both happened to be staying one room beside the next. Jacob Eames was an atheist, and he had been influencing Adoniram. He had begun to convince Adoniram that God was a lie and that he needed to give up on Christianity. And God in his providence got a hold of Adoniram Judson in that moment. As he heard the screaming and the anguished cries of his atheist friend, he came to grips with the reality that there is a God. And because of that, hundreds of thousands of people in Burma, Myanmar, now call Jesus Christ Lord. God works all things for good, for the good of his people. Well, I want to mention one last example. A few months ago, I read my sons a story uh, from a little book that we've been using occasionally for family devotions. Uh, thank you to the Buns. I bought the book off of them, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I don't know if the boys have thought about this story twice since I read it to them, but I have thought about it again and again and again. It's a true story from before the Civil War. It took place in Western Virginia where there was a slave whose name was Cuff. And Cuff was a popular name given to slaves at the time. Cuff was a gifted believer in Jesus Christ. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of godliness. When a circuit preacher 
couldn't be found to come preach at the local church where many of the slaves attended, it was Cuff that was called upon to stand up and to speak. And he would speak the word of God with knowledge and with passion. God blessed Cuff so that many people were saved by his preaching. Well, Cuff's master was a good man who treated Cuff well, but he died. And in his will, he evenly distributed his slaves among his sons. And the son that Cuff went to was not a good man. Perhaps the father had hoped that Cuff would have a good influence on his son. We don't know. But soon the son ran into financial trouble, and he sold Cuff to another man. And he told this man, he said, This slave Cuff, he's a good worker. He's a man that you can trust. But he also said, Cuff has one fault, and that's his religion. He's always praying. He's always going to meeting. This new master was an atheist. And he replied, Ah, is that all you have against him? I'll soon whip that out of him. Let me read to you from the account recorded by the Methodist minister James Finley. This is his accounting of what happened after that. On the ensuing Sabbath, Cuff went to meeting, and also at night, but returned so to be ready for duty early on Monday morning. He was not aware of the infidel character of his master. Though from what he had seen and heard during the short time he had been with him, he knew that his master was a stranger to grace. Knowing also that there are many irreligious people who nevertheless have a great respect for religion and its institutions, when Cuff was asked the next morning by his master where he had been, he said, I have been to meeting, and bless the Lord, it was a good time, master. Cuff said the master in a gruff, angry voice, You must quit praying. I will have none of it in this place. Massa, I do anything you tell me that I can do, but I can't quit praying. My Massa in heaven command me to pray. But you shall quit it and promise to do so, or I will whip you. I cannot do one nor the other, Massa. Follow me then, you obstinate Negro, said the master, greatly excited, and we shall see whose authority is to be obeyed in this matter. The slave was led out, and after being stripped of the few tattered garments that covered his person, he was tied to a tree in the yard. With a rawhide, the master inflicted twenty-five strokes upon his bare back. And the master then said, Now, Cuff, will you quit praying? No, Massa, was the reply. I will pray to Jesus as long as I live. He get, then gave the Negro twenty-five more lashes, and the blood ran down to the ground. And at the close of this horrid scene, in the brutal tragedy, the master exclaimed, You will quit now, won't you? And meekly, just as his divine master bore the cruel scourge before him, Cuff replied, No, my Massa, I will pray to my blessed God while I live. This so enraged the infuriate fiend that he flew at him with all the rage of a tiger thirsting for blood. And plying the bloody weapon with all his remaining strength, he stopped not beating till he was obliged to give over from sheer exhaustion. Will you stop praying now, you infernal? 
The word is nigger you. Kids don't use that word. The same meek voice replied, No, Massa, you may kill me, but while I live, I must pray. Well, then you shall be whipped this much and more every time you pray or go to meeting. He was untied. He was ordered to put on his clothes and to go about his work. And when out of sight and out of the hearing of his master, he sang in a low and plaintive tone, My suffering time will soon be o'er. Then shall I sigh and weep no more. My ransomed soul shall soar away to sing God's praise in endless day. While this cruel scene was transpiring, the young mistress was looking through the window weeping. When her husband came into the house, she said, My dear husband, why did you whip that poor Negro so? Just for praying. I'm sure there can be no harm in that. Silence, shouted the enraged husband. Not another word on the subject, or I will give you as much as I gave him. All that day the man raved like a madman, cursing the Negro and all his race, and cursing God for having created them. Night came, and he retired to his chamber and fell upon his bed to rest. In vain he courted sleep, if for nothing else than to shut out the horrid visions of the tempest-tossed mind. God came upon this man with conviction. He turned from side to side with unutterable groanings. And just before day, he exclaimed, I feel that I shall be damned. Oh God, have mercy on me. And he said to his wife, the first word he had spoken to her since his threat, he said, Is there anyone about this house that can or will pray for me? None that I know of, said she except that poor Negro you whipped yesterday. Oh, I am sure he will not, and he cannot pray for me. Yes, said the weeping wife, I think he will. Well, then for God's sake, send someone to call him. A servant was soon dispatched, and when Cuff heard that his master wanted him, expecting a renewal of the scenes of yesterday, for he had been praying all night, he went from his low, dingy cabin into the chamber of his master, And what was his astonishment when he entered to find his master prostrate on the floor, crying for mercy? Oh, said he at the sight of his injured slave, will you, can you pray for me? I feel that I shall be condemned before morning unless God have mercy upon me. Yes, Massa, I bless God. I have been praying for you and the mistress all night. Cuff then fell upon his knees beside his prostrate master and his kneeling wife. And with a fervor and a faith that opened heaven, he wrestled hard with God for this guilty man. Thus he continued in prayer and exhortation, pointing to the guilty to the guiltless one till morning light, when God in mercy stooped to answer prayer and set the dark sin-chained soul of that infidel at liberty and wrote a pardon on his heart. Soon as the love of God was shed abroad in the master's soul, he embraced his servant in his arms. Now you see, how do we know all of those details and all those things that they said and they thought? We know it because those two men from that time on became co-ministers of the gospel 
and traveled all over the eastern coast of the United States preaching the gospel and sharing their story and winning many more to Jesus Christ. We think about the things that Cuff endured. Even the awful beatings of a man full of hatred towards God were a part of God's plan to convert that man's soul and through the both of them to bring many, many more to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. The good of his people. Okay, the promise applied. The promise applied. Let me just mention some very quick ways that we should apply this promise. Number one, consider how blessed we are as Christians that all things work for our good. This means that everything in the end is a blessing to us. There is not a moment in which you are alive in which you are not being blessed by your God. Things near to you and things far away from you are being worked by God for your good. Things that happen to you tomorrow and things that happen in the remotest parts of the earth are all a blessing for you. Everything in this world is blessing for you. The rise and fall of nations is blessing for you. God has taken the barrel of his blessing and he has turned it upside down and he is pouring it all over your head. He is lavishing you with blessing. And it's all of grace. And it's all through the cross of Christ. Dear Christian, do you see how blessed you really are? Second, consider how little reason we have for ever grumbling or complaining. When God turns even our troubles into blessings, how can we grumble? Surely it is unbelief and rebellion for us to gripe against God. Romans 8.28 changes everything. Even our dark days are in the long run going to be bright. Even when you are suffering, you can be sure that in the end this suffering is for your blessing and your eternal happiness. And therefore let no groaning or complaining ever be found upon our lips. Number three. Consider how much reason we have to be encouraged even in the midst of trouble. We may not see yet how this trial or this suffering is going to work for our good, but we know that our God is faithful and we know that we can trust his word and in his time, he will make clear how everything was for our good. We sing the hymn all the time, God works in a mysterious way says this, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Number four, consider how utterly foolish it is for a person to remain a non-Christian. When a promise like Romans 8.28 is offered to anyone and everyone who will trust the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from their sins, why would anyone remain in their sins? 
Surely they see that there is more happiness and blessing to be found in Christ than in any sin or anything this world can offer. Why would someone refuse to love a God like this? Number five, since all things are being worked by God for our good, consider how much reason we have to be filled with gratitude and love and praise towards him. He works all for our good. Should we not then seek to do all for his glory? Should we not be absolutely devoted to a God who is this kind and gracious and loving towards us? Should this God not be our all in all? Let us be earnest in our praises. Let us have hearts ablaze with love for God when we worship him on Sundays and as we seek to worship him with our lives on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Let us believe this promise of Romans 8.28 and let it cause us to love and to worship our God. Let's pray.